So I'm delighted here today to have again our guest, George Gale. Uh, We had George on last week in a prior episode, and we really just started digging into both his, his personal journey, if you want to call it that, to into organizing, but also then uh, this unbelievable body of, you might call it experimentation, and then learning that he's done through People's Action as well as other organizations. So we're going to pick up where we left off last time with um, asking George to take the experiences he shared around deep canvassing and around multiracial organizing that worked in both urban and rural settings. And let me ask you to get the ball rolling this week, George, with uh, a couple of things. If you have a story handy that um, you could use that illustrates some of what you're talking about, and and I'm, I'm thinking here about how you said that the most common response you heard when you did the deep canvassing, the listening-based, listen-first, talk-later type of canvassing, was that people were just blown away that you were interested in them, that anybody was taking the time. So I'd love to hear a story or two about that. And then, if you're able to call some forth, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about was there anything different, or is there, in your opinion, anything different about that deep canvassing strategy in small towns and rural communities versus urban? Maybe not, but just curious about that. Yeah, yeah. So in this original 10,000 conversations we did that were really primarily about listening in, uh, in 2017, yeah, the top refrain without question was, um, wow, like nobody's ever asked me before. Um, so just a reminder that I think all of us, you know, want to be asked how we came to see things and what we're feeling and what we're needing. And I don't think right now it's a kind of a, a strong part of our human nature and certainly our culture to ask. So that 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 did a lot and it, it kind of softened the ground for organizing and it, and it was done kind of authentically. So and then deep canvas is really it's a non-judgmental form of conversation designed to create space to allow somebody to re-examine their view on an issue um, and almost always done around an issue that has been used to create division between different groups of people and different groups of politics. And um, and those are longer form conversations. They're often 10 to 15, even 20 minutes, uh, most often done um, on the doors, on, you know, at, on somebody's front porch or stoop. Um, some, you know, during the pandemic, more and more of them were done over the phone, but I think people are back to the door. So just to say that, and the practice really started in uh, Los Angeles around efforts uh, build support for marriage equality. That's where Deep Canvas really kind of grew. And then the organization I worked with um, at the time, uh, People's Action, decided to test whether we could uh, do deep canvassing in rural communities and whether we could do it to help move people around race in particular. And, um, and the first experiment, which we did uh, conversations in rural North Carolina, uh, Pennsylvania and Michigan was focused on whether we could help people rethink um, immigration as a, as a priority issue for them and an issue that we saw um, the right really kind of stirring a resentment around. And just, you know, one story from one of those conversations um, is was on in a trailer court that I was deep canvassing at in, in North Carolina in the kind of Alamance County area, the kind of former textile mill stronghold. 
we were working with a gentleman and he definitely, you know, came out guns a blazing and was not happy that we knocked on his door and, you know, and you could feel the palpable tension in the first four or five minutes. But I think, you know, as, you know, he explained, you know, we basically said, that, I'll stop for a second. The, the deep canvas was really around, we would ask, hey, there's a big conversation happening in this country around healthcare. And some people are saying it should be universal meaning like everybody gets it and this and you know we didn't get into all the buzzwords around medicare it wasn't that and like you know where would you rate yourself on that like 10 you think it's the best idea in the world one you hate it like where are you and even a number of conservative folks this was a very poor era was like this actually sounds pretty good mm -hmm. um i'm an eight <clears throat> and i'd say well you know there's also a conversation happening in the country around immigration and some people are saying universal should mean universal meaning even folks that you know, are not here legally should be able to have access the program. Where would you rate yourself on that? Well, hell, I'm a two, you know? So like, so we've now like got mm -hmm. this meaty conversation to happen. And we'd like, then we would just ask them, we wouldn't frown or be mad that they were a two. We'd be like, well, what makes you a two? Like what, you know, what makes you a two? Like, yeah, I want to know. And then you, then you would dig more and like, well, tell me more. What like experiences led you to being a two? And then we would share where we were at. Not as if we were better, it was just sort of being authentic and honest. And then we asked like um, people about an experience they've had, an immigration experience they've had, somebody they know. Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a family immigration experience or whatnot. Um, and then we share one. Um, and then we asked people like a time that was hard in their lives where they needed help and we share one. So on the front stoop in a trailer court in North Carolina, talking to a guy named Ed, who's uh, eight on universal health care, a two on whether it's available to undocumented folks. Um, 10, 12 minutes into the conversation, it washes over his face. He's like, I don't know any immigrants. He's like, I don't even know anything about this stuff. He's like, everything I think about immigration, I saw on the TV. And he's like, I got to rethink this stuff. Like it's wow. like I can't the TV telling me how to think about stuff. Like wow. <laughs> and that just doesn't happen if we come to the door with all the data on how, you know, immigrants are going to, you know, good for the economy or, or it doesn't even come if we come maybe probably with, you know, biblical texts making the case. It wasn't the, it was, there wasn't some insight that we brought. It was an insight that he came to mm -hmm. because we created the space. And I think most of us, one, don't really have places where we kind of kick around or examine an issue or, or a belief. And if we do, we tend to do it with people that already think like we do. Right. And so that is the power of Deep Canvas. And that, what I just described, happens over and over. Um, and uh, like I said in our last conversation, even people who don't move on the issue are moved by the quality of the conversation. I, I had a conversation, I've, I've been on a road trip just meeting with people from across the political spectrum uh, over the last year. And I'm sitting with a farmer in uh, in rural Michigan who is not happy to be sitting down with me in his bar and wondering why he agreed to the meeting. Um, but I just, you know, listened to him. I was very authentic about my views on things, but I listened to his without judgment. And we sat there for a while. And, you know, I asked him, like, what do we got to do to heal the country at the end? And he's like, more of this. He's <laughs> like, I liked <laughs> this was good. And he entered uh, into he, he, it with reluctance and even a little resentment initially. Yeah, oh, totally. Yeah. Um, and then I learned at the end of the conversation that he actually was supportive of immigration relief for undocumented children because of experiences he had on his farm. But I would have never known that if I would have judged him and jumped down his throat because he didn't think like I did. So I right. think there's 
deep canvassing is a very specific methodology. There's a group called the New Conversations Initiative. You could go online and learn more about it from them. But it's the quality, it's the principles of it that I think we have to figure out how to apply in our relationship with our loved ones, with people. Um, and, and it works in urban, rural. We've done, you know, did a huge program in Minneapolis around how people think about policing there. And that was an urban program. Mm -hmm. So it's... Mm -hmm. it, it applies it applies with all of and us. and in general the the details would be different but in general you find the same kinds of responses in rural as in urban and the relatively same sort of success rate if you want to call that in terms of moving people on the particular issue or no i would say similar in terms of the quality of the conversation and the people being moved by the non-judgmental moment, which is in, you know, stands out in stark relief compared to what most of our kind of popular discourse is right now. But I would, no, I would say the movement rate is better hmm. in urban places. There's no doubt it's, it's better because people have different things. We all are like evolving or growing how we think about things every day. Sure. And we tend to be building upon what we currently believe. And then we get grabbed a little more and we grab a little more. And I think what's tricky right now in this moment is we are all building in a different direction. And so if people With don't different... have something to build upon right. and to help. So I think in, in, a, in, a, you know, in a lot of communities, you're starting with a, a generally conservative, a, a more nativist view. And just because we're talking about immigration, um, in many cases, more conservative view. And so the starting point is different. And that's. You know, and and I, and I was thinking too. I was starting to say also different reinforcements after oh. the after those constructive conversations. <laughs> excuse me, that you or other people's action or or similar uh, deep canvassers have, and you see probably sometimes remarkably uh, like light bulbs going off, epiphanies, the whole bit. But then those folks are going back to the same context with the, not only their own media sources that might undermine that conversation, but also probably nobody else is showing up with respect and listening as their first thing. They're, they find themselves in the crossfire between red and blue, and so it's really easy. So, so here would be a good challenging question. Besides a transformation of our political process, which is one of the things Ruby's working on, where liberals and progressives are routinely showing up in rural, people who live there particularly, and showing up doing good stuff in the community, not just proselytizing for our people or our issues. Until that happens, how might we sustain that, that little bit of movement that came because a person was respected in a conversation? Because once you leave, if there isn't a plan to go back to that person's door two months later, six months later, what could we do? Yeah. Well, you can't leave, and you so the work has to be grounded in the people that live there. Like so, and and they're not leaving, right? So I think it has like all the work I just described was the canvassers were local people, some of whom were paid, and some of who were volunteers. Um, and actually, interestingly, some of the people we canvassed were so moved they became canvassers. Cool. There's amazing, amazing stories about people who were so moved by the process. They're now on the canvassing team. Um, and I think your point around the you have a great conversation and somebody gets a ride to work and right wing radios playing, you know, they're not even trying to listen to right wing radio. They're just trying to get to work. Mm -hmm. And then you go to the diner for lunch and Fox News is playing in the back. I mean, it's just it is a surround sound, mm -hmm. whether you even want to be in it or not. Right. Um, and you go to a, even a, the, the wire, a fitness center, you know, and, you know, in the 
town I'm from. And, you know, and that's that's what's going to be on the TV. Nobody's even thinking about it. I don't think anybody's even trying to make a political statement by yeah. putting it on. It's just on. Right. And so I think your point is right. And this is where I think, like, generally progressive people, and I would say progressive urban people, often don't know how many liberal-leaning people live in rural America. And I think there's been a such an obsession over the Trump voter and really just trying to get our head wrapped around the Trump voter. Um, and it's important. And it's important for people that feel like the, the way the Republican Party is moving is dangerous for democracy and the country and the world. Like, it's important to figure that out. I'm not saying it's not. But I think we, like, undervalue the already social justice-minded people that live in rural communities. And so many are doing incredible work um, at incredible cost, whether that is being socially ostracized. I know it just like you do many rural, like, um, kind of social justice-minded people, Democrats that actually get death threats, that have their offices vandalized, um, and they stick with it. And I just think that I would say, let's invest in who's there mm -hmm. and allow them to do the work. People are out there. We don't need anybody to parachute in, but people can't get it done on, you know, duct tape and bungee cords. They need to be supported in doing this work and they're not going anywhere. Um, so we don't need to parachute in. We got the people. They just they just need support to do it. How hard is it or how long does it take? Now, let's save the second part. How long does it take to train and, and fully equip those local folks that are already there but have maybe never heard of deep canvassing to be ready to go out, including the question of uh, both the skill building, the understanding, but also maybe the fear factor? Because I hear that a fair bit in the trainings oh. Ruby does. Um, and a lot of people are like, ad a lot of liberals are adamant about it, both including some who live in red areas, oh, but yeah. also certainly, certainly liberals from from towns and suburbs, this kind of notion that uh, I wouldn't do it, it's too dangerous. And my response is always some mix of, well, there are real dangers, and there are some awful stories. But I think overall, if you go in the right way as a, as a respectful person, that tends to be a little overblown. Most of our conservative neighbors will not try to harm us. So anyway, I guess that's a twofold question. Partly is how long does it take to, to get a group of people ready to do deep canvassing? And then how do you all address this question of fear when people bring it up? Sure. I mean, you could train somebody to do very average deep canvassing in four hours or a day. Right. They, mm -hmm. they, they could go do it and they wouldn't be bad. <laughs> right. And then um, more training would up the quality. But the main thing you got to do is get trained, which, again, four to eight hours is more than enough. And then go do it. And you learn through the debriefing and that a lot of the training happens after you hit the doors um, on the fear thing. I think they're kind of I would break this into two kinds of canvassing. I think canvassing for a party for the Democratic Party right now is mm -hmm. actually a bigger risk than deep canvassing to re-examine how people think about an issue. Hmm. Because I do think the Democratic Party brand has been is so maligned in so many rural communities and kind of so, um, it's so loaded, right? It represents something right. um, bigger than even what it is. And so I, I think that's a, it's a different thing. But I think if you took the quality of the conversation, which was one of like, I, we call it suspending judgment, mm -hmm. like if it, like suspending judgment and actually like I'm here because I'm curious about you. I want to get to know you 
when I, you know, this isn't going to surprise you, but like in these trips I've been doing around the country, I'm often like meeting with the only rural elected that's a Democrat or the only one that's won in 20 years. One of the first things they'll tell me is that the state party told them only knock on these doors. Here's right. the list, only knock on those doors. And they were like, they did that for like half a day. And they're like, no, I'm knocking on every door. I'm like knocking on every door. And I think it's like knock on every door show respect for where people are don't come armed with data because you're gonna like somehow convince them that you somehow have some insight that they don't have and listen to people so i think we've had no incidents um in the deep canvassing i mean i'm not saying like they weren't tense conversations but we right had no like major incidents around anything like that but i get it it is it is you know somebody grew up in a rural community you know i'm like wow i'm gonna knock on a door here and we're you know talk about immigration or policing or whatever like this we'll see how it goes but i, th I think if you show up in the right way people are going to be happy to talk to you okay great yeah. yeah 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 so we're almost we're almost done with our second segment i've got a couple other questions for you the, the first one is a uh, step away from the deep canvassing and you've mm -hmm. you're a very smart guy and i love that most of your smarts have come as my friend will brickley used to say you have a you have a PhD in the School of Hard Knocks, and um, that's one of the. It's not the only way to learn. Nothing against our academic friends, but it's certainly an excellent way to learn. But from that broader experience, what else? What What are you thinking about and focusing on, and maybe trying to work on a little, perhaps, that you think might start to shake loose some of this rural-urban divide? That beyond the deep canvassing, beyond the sort of general stance of listening and showing respect, what else do you think we should be doing right now? I think we all need to remember how we talked when we grew up. I think we've actually all become just a little too smart for our own good. <laughs> and we've picked up lots of fancy words and expressions. We've picked up a decent amount of what somebody calls cultural performity. Somebody I interviewed on my podcast, which I didn't even know what it meant when they said it, but I now I'm like, oh yeah, that. So a lot of performing to show we're the most conscious person in the room. And like I said earlier, that stuff layers upon itself. You learn some new stuff and then you learn some new stuff and you learn some new stuff. Like that's not how people talk. Like it's how a small group of people talk. And so I'm calling for a kind of community organizing that gets back to the fundamentals. And community organizing can like be really complicated or it can be really simple. Basically we go out, find out what people care about, Get them to come together around that thing, build some power and put some pressure on somebody to make that thing a reality. That could be getting abandoned houses knocked down in a neighborhood. It could be getting a new road put in or whatever. Um, but that organizing has to start where people are at. It has to, you know, instead of making the simple complicated, which I think we do a lot today, we right. actually have to make the complicated quite simple yep. and to some extent be culturally competent in what we're doing. And so I think we actually need to hire a bunch of people who are from rural communities and working class communities, urban, suburban, and rural to be trained in how to do community organizing that doesn't work on issues decided at a foundation in New York or San Francisco um, or um, from the directors of the organization, but actually they pop up and bubble up from the community and work on those issues. And if we did that all across the country, I think there's an entire generation of young people that came of age in this period of social movements and a beautiful waking that's happening in the country that also are like, you know what, this is great, but this would never make sense to my folks back home. 
the way we talk would never make sense to my folks back home. If we want to get them, whether they live on the border of the Rio Grande or in Southern Indiana, this just doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. So I think we want to train tens of thousands of young people how to remember how to talk like they did, how to start where people are at, how to give people the experience of winning. And through that, then you can start to have some cathartic conversations. And in terms of urban rural divide, like in Michigan, there's some great organizing happening where people are organizing in rural communities, including in conservative churches around housing popped as the issue, the housing crisis that so many people are feeling, but it came out of listening. If they want to pass statewide policy, they're going to need to team up with folks in Detroit. And that's already happening, but it started by starting where people are at, by not telling people, here's the solution, by not saying you need to team up with the folks in Detroit. They came to that conclusion on their own when they got stuck. So I think that kind of that kind of community organizing nationwide, it's going to need to be what I think of as an organizing revival. <laughs> in this country that brings people together that are not progressive. We're not trying to, you know, the, the choirs, the, our biggest problem isn't that the choir's unorganized, it's too damn small. So we gotta figure out how to grow the choir. Um, having conversations with the converted to me is like, that's child's play. We need to reach a whole new set of people and that's gonna require that we are with people, start where people are at, suspend judgment and teach people how to win stuff. Yeah, that's excellent. Now we just need to, we have the people out there who know how to do it and have the hands-on experience and can train folks. We need the money to do it. Let me ask you a choir question real quick. So part of what Ruby does, a pretty substantial part, is focused on the choir, the choir being progressives and liberals and oftentimes not always Dems. But we go to the choir to give them a new hymnal and say, y'all have been singing loud for a long time, but the blend isn't very good. And uh, sometimes you're off key entirely. And we're, of course, what we're talking about is the liberal progressive propensity to have all the answers and all the solutions to be in our heads and to tell working class and rural people where they're going wrong. And of course, Ruby tries to turn that around by, first of all, grounding our side in where we've gone wrong, where we've screwed up, what we've done wrong to contribute to the divide. So I guess in the same way, could you imagine that as a little offshoot of training those tens of thousands of working class folks and others in rural, uh, rural places in small towns to organize in their place, what about getting a few of them to and send them to New York and San Francisco to, you know, smack some sense into the heads of liberal and progressive leaders who seem to be bound and determined to stick with the same hymnal and keep singing the same hymn no matter what? Do you think there's some potential to bust their oh, balloons? Yeah. So you're saying to bring people from, you know, kind of working class, non-progressive communities to people to say, yeah, I mean, it, you know, when I used to run the uh, people's action, I, we'd start to move into some heady stuff, fancy, we'd start to use the word worldview and things like this. And I'll never forget Marilyn Evans from public housing in Cincinnati. She's like, George, I couldn't sell any of this back where I live. I don't even understand what you're talking about anymore. So I think just to be grounded in communities and in people who can help keep us all honest. So I think for sure, I think it also, it's amazing that we think somebody would think just like we do, even though we know they've had a completely different life experience than mm -hmm. we do. When I go back home, I'm like, of course this equals Trump. It doesn't surprise me one bit. Right. right. But to think that I am somehow so much better than everybody else, that I could somehow be in a conservative, I could grow up in a conservative context, a racist context, whatever, and I would somehow 
rise above it. Right. Somehow other people can't like that, that. To me, there's something very arrogant about that worldview. And I think we need to bust it up. You know, I, I love the Pew political typology report that came out in 2022. It's like 6% of the country is progressive. And that seems dreamy. Um, <laughs> and so I think, I'll, you know, a lot of folks don't even know what a lot of us. And I say that as somebody that is progressive. Right. I think a lot of folks don't know what we're talking about. So I think right. and I so I think you're where you're going with the rural urban bridge is getting people in a room together. There's nothing beats it. You know, we can do political education. We can do all the other things. When people get in a room together, especially if you set that non-judgmental, suspending judgment, start where people are at kind of context, beautiful things are going to happen. Fabulous. In our final minute, tell me what you're doing now. I know you left people's action. You've been yep. on the road again. You're kind of the Jack Kerouac of, uh, of community <laughs> organizing. Tell us where that's leading you. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jack Kerouac with less uh, less substances. Well, you learned apparently you learned that lesson sometime back. Yeah, so. yeah. I did the Jack Kerouac thing earlier <laughs> in life. Um, let's see. I mean, I, I've been on the road, uh, especially after COVID. I just really wanted to like be with my country mm-hmm. and not have it interpreted to me by the New York Times or you know some magazine or anything like that. So that was the drive. Um, but right now, I am on a mission to equip thousands of young people, but not only young people, um, how to do this kind of organizing and engagement that would bring way more people in and build, you know, what I think of as a bigger we. And I think people are out there. I think there's something happening in our culture where young people are waking and they're challenging lots of things that, you know, I'm Gen X, you know, and, and sometimes I like don't get it. And I'm like, banging my head against the wall. I'm like this, I, I just don't get it. I don't get it and frustrated with it. And I've decided that's not, that's getting me nowhere. Hmm. I actually really want to understand what young people see. They're asking questions I should have asked, but I didn't even know how to ask. They're challenging culture and systems in a way that I didn't think were possible. And the more young people I talk to want to do bigger we, whether it's organizing, political engagement, deep canvassing, but they wouldn't know where to go. There's very little kind of in our culture right now that rewards the bigger we. It, it again, it rewards what we talked about last time. It rewards being like, I'm going to scan the conversation, figure out how you're exactly the hateful person I thought you were and say goodbye. And I think we're trying to say to people like, let's be curious about each other. Let's try to understand each other and let's see if we can build something bigger together. So that's my job right now. So we're training organizers. We're finding them. Uh, we're going on the road and helping them and, uh, and when we're done, we hope that this kind of engagement actually is the norm versus the exception. Well, so great. I know I would say good luck, but I know it's going to happen because you're doing it and the things that you decide to do happen. So we have been very privileged to spend this week and last with George Gale. George, I don't think you have a website for this new work. Is that correct? Or is there a place folks could go to follow you? They could go to, you know, a website that is George, my first name and my last name, G-O-E-H-L dot org. And then there's stuff about, you know, the fundamentals of organizing. There's stuff about to see each other, some of the rural work. And, and so there's some stuff there that people could check out. Fantastic. And and if you don't remember how to spell Gale, you can also get to George through Ruby, the Rural Urban Bridge Initiative. We will most definitely forward any interest uh, any folks who want to uh, be on the, the George Gale train. We've been, as I said, very happy and very privileged to have George here on Two Worlds, One Country. I know you and I are going to keep working together. One of the best For things sure. that's happened to me in the last year is to meet people like you 
and learn from you and then figure out, daggone it, we're in this together and we're going to make it happen yeah. together. Exactly. Thanks so much, George. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay. Take care. And everybody, all of our listeners on WHC Wise, um, excuse me, WHC Emory, W-I-S-E-Wise, and our podcast listeners, this has been Two Worlds, One Country. I'm Anthony Flacavento.